Hey, what is up, everybody? This is Rob Rivera. And this is Rob Rucha. And you're you're listening to the Robcast Podcast. Podcast. Before we get to the interview, we'd like to give a shout out to Scott at Good Company with Bowling. My name is Scott Bowling. I have a show called Good Company. Good Company is a show where we film artists in the rock genre and we talk about their first record all the way to where they are now. We've interviewed bands like Korn and Seven Us and Rich Ward. You can find me on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook under Good Company or Good Company with Bowling. So please, if you get a chance, check it out. Good Company! Welcome back to the Robcast podcast. Rob Rivera is uh, with me, as always. How you doing? Episode 15. Episode 15. Today's a special show. Uh, uh, We have an iconic musician. uh, Uh, Yes. Part of the big four. Mm -hmm. And I was very ecstatic when we were able to lock him down. We have Mr. Dave Ellison of Megadeth. On the yes, show. Yes, one of my my influences as a young teenager listening to Megadeth's Rust in Peace and Peace Cells and Killing is My Business. And I mean it was if you if you were into thrash and hard, you know, rock heavy metal, you had to be into Megadeth. Absolutely. And you had has, to appreciate what they did. He has brought an iconic sound, an iconic playing style that uh, we will get into in this episode. Yeah, amazing topics. Can't wait to ask him about his tone and his basses. Yeah, and it just um, have a lot of questions for him, you know, as far as adapting to different drummers and talking about all things Ellison, Altitudes and Attitude, all his... his uh, Metal Allegiance. Metal Allegiance. Uh, he's, the guy is like super, super busy. So without any further ado, let's get to our conversation with Mr. Dave Ellison of Megadeth. Hey man. Hey, how's it going? Good. What's going on? How are you guys doing? Uh pretty good. I'm I'm waiting on Rob to connect. This is the other Rob. Um Okay, it's, got it's it. Yeah, a little yeah. confusing with two Robs, but <laughs> Hey, um, trust me, I'm in a band with two days. I was gonna say, yeah, well. you come from the same world. <laughs> I know all too well. Um Yeah, man. Uh good to good to meet. Both Rob and I have followed you for a long time and you know, wanna thank you for being on the show. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So yeah, we've uh you know, followed you for a long time. I'm a bass player as well, so I've followed the tones that you use and the basses that you play. And those are some of the questions I wanted to get into from from my side of things. I'm also the recording engineer that does a lot of non-point stuff. So, um, you know, I've got a, a good amount of, of uh, I guess, tone questions for you, too. Sure. But uh, we'll start with uh, the book, uh, More Life with Death. Okay. So yeah. um, how did Perfect. that come about? You know, last year, 2018, I think it was about March or so, we were back in the Midwest, me and my partner, Tom, who runs my, essentially my Ellison Industries little mini empire we're building here. Um, We were back doing a a Midwest coffee tour. Um, A company in Sioux Falls, South Dakota was putting our uh, coffee into their beer um, and... um, Back in March of 2018, we were doing a Midwest coffee tour uh, through like South Dakota, Minnesota, um, visiting record stores, head shops, uh, brew pubs, <laughs> you know, rock and roll places. Because you know, Ellison Coffee Company is a rock and roll coffee company. That's that's our that's our niche. That's the customers that we seem to connect well with. And while we were back there, you know, the idea hits. Um, like, you know what we should really do? Uh, we should really do this. We should write another book. And it, and it should focus more on things since coming back to Megadeth in 2010. My, my first memoir, My Life with Death, touched on some of that. It touched mostly on my, my season that I was uh, away from Megadeth from 2002 when the band, uh, when the group disbanded and, and uh, up until my rejoining in 2010. So this was for this, this new book, More Life of Death, was really aimed to focus on the coffee company, um, the record label, EMP label group. And, and what I found interesting is that the conversation 
uh, about acquiring combat records, which was my alma mater years back where uh, Megadeth's first record deal um, started there. That's, you know, that that took the story of the book all the way back to the origins of Megadeth, um, the founding years, um, getting signed to combat, making killing is my business piece sells and really kind of everything up through the eighties, up, up through the so far so good. So what record? Um, and largely those are untold years of Megadeth's history because we were just starting to be on MTV, but the real big MTV years didn't really start until like 1991 really with, with, um, Clash of the Titans and Headbangers Ball was getting quite popular. So, you know, the thrust of the 90s era of Megadeth is largely, you know, largely kind of public knowledge at this point um, mm-hmm. um, by way of the Internet. Um, but the stuff in the 80s, I mean, unless you owned a copy of Circus Magazine or Hit Parader Magazine or Metal Edge Magazine or, you know, you saw us on tour um, or met us at an in-store a record shop, you know, that the most of that story, if you weren't there in the room with us, like that, that's the, the legacies on, on kind of unaccounted for. And so that's what I really found more life with death to really be really just focused back into that. And I've got some, uh, a lot of great people loaned me, um, you know, gave me some great stories, um, um, every, everybody from KK Downing of Judas Priest to, uh, Dan Donigan of Disturbed. Um, and also, uh, my friends, Greg Handabit and Brad Schmidt, who I grew up with in Jackson, Minnesota. We all moved, uh, out to Los Angeles together. It's where we met Dave. It's where, how Megadeth started. So a lot of people from the very, very early days of my life, and then certainly the early days of Megadeth, all the way through some of our big, really, you know, uh, influential years of the band, uh, were able to, to tell kind of their view of it, which I, I really thought was very, gave a nice, a nice perspective of the whole story. Nice. Awesome. So that brings us into the sleeping giant solo CD. What is that all about? So uh, as we were doing the base story, which was, which has essentially become my essentially a, an evening with almost a solo night out with David Ellison um, of storytelling, uh, kind of a bit of a clinic concept of playing some of the riffs, talking about the music, the backstory of the songs as told basically through my bass riffs. Um, we took that concept of, you know, most clinics originally historically have been in music stores, which is really a very sterile clinical place to have a, have a music engagement, you know, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to sell guitars and drums and businesses going on while you're over in the corner trying to conduct a clinic, you know, it, it, yeah. uh, we, and, and by and large, that market has kind of dried up. It's gone away because uh, it was always supported by, you know, uh, an instrument manufacturer. So what we did is with bass story, we said, you know, let's take that same concept Take it into the nightclub so a fan can buy a beer, buy a T-shirt, make it feel like it's more of a concert experience. Um, and I would always have a backing band come up and essentially back me. And this way it became a storyteller event that turned into a concert. And as that, as that concept really, we took that around the world. And um, when we were down in Florida uh, back in uh, December of uh, uh, 2018, uh, we went in the studio with the band, and uh, I just started chugging out some riffs and wrote a song, and Tom wrote lyrics and sang on it. And and um, I realized I had a couple of other songs sitting there that, that were finished musically but needed lyrics. Tom put some lyrics to them. We did some co-writes with a few people like Daryl from Run DMC and, um, and uh, now also AK from Flotsam and Jetsam and you know, we we really turned it into uh, you know some new some new tracks that um, that 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 have you know um, you know essentially those are the new songs in the record. There's some other tracks that I, that I had sitting around that I really wanted to uh, come to light, and and some of those are from a group that I had called F5 back in 2003 up through. Um, 
uh, kind of up through about 2008 or so. And um, the earliest songs that we wrote, uh, there's some demos of those that I, I really just loved. And I, I think it's going to be fun for the fans to hear those. And then in, in 1993, Megadeth was on the Countdown to Extinction tour, and the tour was interrupted uh, with some health issues, and there were some breaks during the tour. Um, and I, I got together with a friend of mine that I met by way of Nick Menza, Uh, via mountain bike riding of all things in California. Um, and his name is Pat Shunk and, um, he was a songwriter and a guitar player and, and he and I really hit it off. So we got together and started writing some songs and we wrote about 14 tracks together that never really saw the light of day. We had a bunch of different singers sing on it. Um, John Bush being one, uh, he sang on a really cool song called if you were God. And then David Glenn Isley, who was also in house Lords, um, Jafria, Yes, remember. And uh, yeah, so he came in, and we had we had hired him in to sing on a few tracks. So those, some of the, a few of those tracks are going to, are also on the Sleeping Giants album. So it's kind of this retrospective of about twenty, God, probably almost twenty five or more years of just songs that I've written with uh, by myself or with other people, collaborations, and and that's that's what makes up Sleeping Giants. So this is the first time it'll see the light of day, basically. These were the sleeping giants sitting in the vault, you know? (laughs) I think I have heard, I think I heard of the F5 band. I want to say that that was in your, during a downtime, correct, right? It was, it was, you know, when, when Megadeth disbanded in 2002, I just said, you know what? I am never putting another band together. It's like, screw that. I, I. I know how much work it is. There's never a shot in hell that I'll ever achieve that kind of success ever again in my life like that's just i put in so many hard years of that and when i was younger and when i could afford it and now of course i'm married i have a family to support and there's just no way i got no way i could do it i ended up taking a job doing artist relations marketing for uh pv electronics um which was a super fun job you were actually our a and r guy Yes, exactly. That's kind of where we first met, ironically. Yeah, I remember uh, my, my guitar player said, dude, I just talked to Dave Ellison. And I said, what do you mean you talked to Dave Ellison? I said, he's my A&R guy at PV. I said, no shit. <laughs> it it awesome. was a great way to meet people just like yourself. I mean, the the Krogers from, from Nickelback, um, guys that played with uh, Kid Rock, Slipknot, a bunch of people in Nashville. And, you know, it turns out Megadeth was a very well-liked, very well-respected group. So when an I called, people took my call and went, wow, oh, we love Megadeth. And, you know, you're, you're a, you know, an easygoing guy and we'd love to have a conversation with you about PV. So it was really, it was awesome. It was a great way for a, you know, essentially a rock star to enter the world of corporate America, if you will, you know, and PV being a privately held company made it a lot easier. There wasn't all this sort of bureaucratic red tape, you know, inside of a big publicly traded company or anything. And I ended up going to college. I, I, had done a few college studies to the university of Phoenix, uh, in the late nineties. And it was kind of difficult to do it, but uh, to just kind of get it all done while I was on tour. So I sort of sidelined it. But during the season of uh, 2005 to 2007, I finished up my college studies, so I got a proper, you know, four-year uh, undergraduate business degree, and um, working at PV. And and during that time, I, um, I, you know, this this group F5 d- developed, um, and it, and it really was it was so cool because as much as I swore off ever having another band. These guys were a little bit younger than me, so they they tuned their guitars different, drop tunings and different things that we never did in Megadeth. And they were, you know, they they were fans. You know, they were fans of the Megadeth stuff, but they they were their own, you know, had their own new generational uh, point of view and and how they they like to write. And and it was fun for me to just kind of, you know, even though I was the seasoned veteran in the in the room, I kind of became the new guy in the room and uh, learning how the next generation behind me was, was doing heavy metal. And, and I enjoyed it so much. I mean, we got together almost every day writing songs and, and we put two records out and it really became an awesome, uh, an awesome process for me. So, um, you know, kind of, it kind of restored my faith in music and the love of being in a band again. Well, that's cool to be able to actually adapt, like you said, to the new tunings and the new, vibe because i mean back then i mean most of the bands all were all 440 standard tuning right yeah and it's funny i started bringing in songs 
that I had written from as far back as 1993, 92, 91, even stuff that I had from the countdown to extinction demos, stuff that that just ideas I had that never, you know, never made it onto a final song. And I started bringing those ideas into the F5 guys and started just tuning my guitar down. And it's funny when you put your finger in the same position to play the same chord, but in a new tuning, you basically have a whole new sound. And and I loved it, man. It was so it was really inspiring for me um, to just get have this musical rebirth and 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 being excited every day. It's like it's like the same guitar with the same strings tuned differently suddenly became a new instrument in my hands. Totally. Now, do you do you still do like drop tuning today, even with Megadeth? You know, in Megadeth, we don't. We always tune standard, um, and we'll sometimes tune the whole guitar down, but it's still in that standard tuning. But when I when I played with Soulfly, oh my God, they were like, I'd have to have the guitar player Mark Rizzo. I'm like, dude, what tuning are we in right now? And he, 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 and because because <laughs> a lot of stuff is really super low. Thank God I, I play a five string bass, so I'm already kind of adept to it you know but i i grew up learning you know again i grew up to piano lessons learning how to read manuscript and when i see a g on a bass it's the third fret on the e string you know what i mean it's like yeah, to me yeah. there everything's very literal and relevant and i didn't even know how to read tab i mean tab didn't even exist until what 15 20 years ago i mean when i was growing up you know, even well into my career, there was no tab, you know, it was tabs <laughs> a, a, recent, a recent thing. So I had to, you know, kind of adapt to a lot of this new, new stuff. And, and like with metal allegiance, for instance, we always tuned down. Oh my God. Like every other song. In fact, we just did some, some, some shows, you know, every time we do dates together, I'm like, Oh my God, like, okay, how many guitars do I need? And am I tuning here on that song? I mean, the set list is like a menu of like, this bass, that tuning, oh, next song, this tuning, you know, so it really keeps me on my game um, because, you know, just because of that. So it, it's, 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 I'm definitely in both worlds now of standard and, and a lot of drop tuning stuff. Yeah. So let me ask you, I mean, for a guy who's been in this, in this, in the music world for so long, you have had, you know, a few lineup changes in Megadeth. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, how have you been able to adapt me as a drummer, how you've been able to adapt to so many different drummers? Because, I mean, that is when a drummer comes in. Obviously, things change. You know, like the, every every drummer has a every drummer has a different feel, has a different attack with their hands. Like, how have you been able to adapt to every single drummer you played with in Megadeth? Well, you know, great question, and I, I, I I'll give you an exact moment I really noticed it, and that was during 1998, getting ready to go out and do Ozfest, and. Nick Menz's health was really starting to go and his ability to play. He was really having some physical uh, limitations and it, it was clear we had to make a change. And, and Dave uh, brought in Jimmy DeGrasso, who was a friend of his. And, um, fantastic drummer, by the way, fantastic drummer. And yeah. Jimmy is a studied school. He went to MI PIT years ago. He's, he's a real educated musician. And his meter is incredible. And he, he literally flew off he was because he was he was Alice Cooper's drummer. So he flew home from Europe, from Alice, over to Fresno, uh, a show we had at an outdoor amphitheater, about a 5,000-seat place, sold out. And um, Jimmy came in. He was learning the songs on the road with Alice. He literally flew in. We sound-checked just a couple things. And, and that night we went on stage, and he played 18 songs top to bottom flawlessly wow. wow i was like holy cow i was like holy cow. i kept asking him i said dude so like beginning of holy wars you know there's this right he goes dude i got it i said so like you know when we go into symphony of destruction you know there's an intro tape he goes dude i got it don't worry about it i got it i'm like all right <laughs> and uh and i tell you what man he, that was a huge lesson for me because I then later had other gigs like jimmy asked me to go play with ronnie montrose and i had the same thing basically sight unseen work on the tunes at home, fly down to Florida to the state theater in Clearwater where we've probably all played and quick sound check, run through a couple things. Ronnie said, here's the marching orders of how we're going to run the show. And next thing it's fucking showtime and count it off. And here I am playing the whole set. I never even played with anybody before. You yeah. know? And um, wow. so, yeah. And I learned that from Jimmy. So, and I've done a lot of those kind of gigs since plug and play and just, that's how we roll, you know? Um, but with Jimmy to the, to the feel thing you talking about, um, 
the thing I noticed is is some of the tempos were pulled back in Fresno, and and I realized what it was is Jimmy was just playing them like straight, like a metronome, like like they should be played. Um, a couple days later, Nick actually came back to finish out a few days on the tour with us, and it was so obvious. Just the Nick had a great, uh, you know, he was a rock star. He was a real rock star presence, but. We had really developed some bad habits together as a band. We were pushing things, pulling things, rushing things. And, and we just, we had done it for so many years together, the four of us, me, Dave, Marty, and Nick, that it just, we just, you don't, you're not even aware of it anymore, right? It's just how it is. Mm-hmm. And suddenly he came in. I went, oh my God, like our tempos are out, out of control. I can barely play the parts. Like we're, we're through points of shit so fast, I can't even really play it right. And, you know, Nick's a runaway train on the tempo at this part. And, you know, there's just these things and they were just habits. And then Nick departed the group and Jimmy became our full time drummer. And and initially I was like, this is so weird to really play in time, you know, Um, because Jimmy pulled us back and locked us into real proper time. And it was interesting because it wasn't until. Marty Friedman departed the group about a year or so later, year and a half later, and Al Petrelli came in that we really started to click and sound like a band. And what's interesting about that is that Dave and I, because we grew up together forming Megadeth and and essentially my bass playing is such a, you know, a, a founding cornerstone of the Megadeth sound along with Dave's rhythm guitar that essentially he and I are the sound of Megadeth mm-hmm. and that the other two guys, as they would sort of change in and out almost in pairs <laughs> through the history, <clears throat> that the sound of Megadeth was pretty much retained through Dave's voice and the, you know, Dave's guitar and my bass, but that the drum and other guitar position, you know, almost changed out simultaneously. And, and, um, once Al came into the band, Al was really big on playing behind the beat as was Jimmy. These guys were real pocket players and having played a lot of other things besides heavy metal uh, in their careers, they brought a whole new level of awareness to groove, pocket, timing, and where to place the beat. And that really made Megadeth sound so much heavier. Um, and and it, that was, a, a, quite honestly, it's funny. I mean, that was, what, almost eight, 17, 18 years into our career, uh, that what a wake up call that was to me as a musician. And in a lot of ways, Jimmy and Al made me an, uh, a, a much, much better bass player. Now, did you do any records with that lineup? We, the, the risk album we recorded with, uh, me, Dave, Marty and, and Jimmy. Oh. And then it wasn't until the, the world needs a hero that we did that it was, you know, me, Dave, Jimmy and Al. And then, okay. That then I think probably the record that really, really let that lineup shine brightly was the Root Awakening live CD and DVD. Okay. Um, there's there's moments in that in those per live performances where, man, that band really freaking locked together. man. It was just so cool. I was just curious because you've played with so many drummers. I mean, at now point, we've only had really two bassists. Right. You know, and, and with three with my partner here who actually played on our last record. Yeah. But uh, um, so it's been an easier transition for me, you know, and I just wondering, wondering, like each drummer you've had has got such a different style, like Chris and, and, and Jimmy and Nick and Gar. Like they've all had different styles and I can understand your riffs are so technical. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Menza was hard to play with. He really was not. And again, he was a super great artist. He was very creative. He was a, a credible rock star charisma on stage. He brought all of that. But from a pocket point of view, he was a hard. He and Gar were probably the two hardest drummers to play with. Ironically, maybe arguably two of the more charismatic and artistic drummers of the Megadeth legacy. Um, but, but they were a little harder to play with because of, because of their sense of, of groove. Um, like when Chuck Beeler came into the band after Gar, Chuck would listen to everything from DRI to Steely Dan, you know, and he was a big groove monster and the band really got settled in a pocket big time with Chuck and Chuck, like Jimmy had incredible meter and time. He never rushed. He never dragged. He was just dead on the money. 
Um, another example of that too, was probably when I came back to the band in 2010, Sean Drover, um, yeah. was, was the drummer of the group. And Sean is, it's funny cause he's an incredible guitar player. He's a great writer. He's a great guitar player. And, um, you know, never really got really any great kudos as a drummer because, you know, he sort of came in to replace a foiled attempt at a rust and peace reunion. So, you know, and sadly he, you know, kind of was the guy that got the gig instead of the guy I think the fans wanted to have the gig, which was meant, yeah. you know, but Sean was an incredible drummer. And I, and I swear to God, I said to myself, I said, you know, I put a couple bases in my car. I drove across the desert from Phoenix where I live over to San Diego to go jam with Dave. Cause we, we said, Hey, look, let's, let's bury the hatchet. Let's try to make this work and let's see how this goes. We'll do 20th anniversary rest in peace. We're in 2010. And we all really wanted it to work. We were just really at that place, you know, of brotherhood to, to do it. And the only thing I said, I go, man, I hope this freaking drummer can play. <laughs> I hope it's, and I, I quite honestly, I said to myself, I said, if if the drummer can't swing this man, I, I, I it, it could be a deciding factor. And thank God I plugged in. Sean counted off Symphony of Destruction, and he played almost exactly like Chuck Beeler. He was really behind the beat. He he didn't hit real hard. He was just he hit right. He didn't have to hit hard because he knew how to hit the drum properly. And that's why you have microphones. Microphones are there to do the, the volume gig. <laughs> yeah. And and he just had a great pocket and things were pulled back. And I tell you what, that Rest in Peace tour we did in 2010, that was the most enjoyable experience playing Rest in Peace that I ever had. Because wow. Sean was such a great player and really pulled things back and locked things into the pocket. Because I was just so curious to, to, to get your perspective on that. But now moving along, um, altitudes and attitude. Um, you and Frankie Bello, that's a very unique uh, pairing right there. And when I first heard about it, I said, man, they're going to have two basses. I didn't realize that Frankie was going to play guitar. How, how, did, how did that come about? Well, it's interesting. We were doing the bass clinics for Harkey um, in 2011 uh, and 12 during the Big Four shows. So I guess really 2011, I guess. Um, and we we're in London one night and we'd done a few clinics together and Frank would come up and he'd play a couple of anthrax things and talk. And then I'd come up, play a couple of Megadeth things and talk. And I think we got on stage together at the end. And I said, you know, we really should come, we should write some tunes so we could have like, kind of like a real clinic curriculum here, you know? And, um, and so we, what happened is it's funny, Frank and I both write on guitar. And, and Frank sent over to me these kind of really tightly woven little singer-songwriter songs uh, was Booze and Cigarettes and Tell the World. And I was like, wow, dude, first of all, I didn't know you could sing like this. And these songs are, they're like little Beatles songs. They're just like, they're done. You know, they're like little two and a half, three minute songs with choruses. And um, I had written a song that became Here Again on our EP. And that was essentially designed to be a clinic uh, backing track, something we could shred over, very riffy. <clears throat> so that was where it started. We just started with this EP, and and people loved it. They're like, "Wow, we didn't certainly didn't expect this from two thrash metal titans, you know, to be putting out a record like this." And but we really like it, and so that encouraged us to continue writing and work toward an LP, which we finally just put out here in uh, January of 2019, and. Um, it's it's been great. Our friend Slash was kind enough to take us to Europe and and play uh, warm the crowd up for him for a couple weeks over there, and then we did another run through the Midwest and um, another run of dates coming up that uh, with Rat and Ace Fraley. Uh, really? Ironically. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. uh, which is awesome because Ace we had Ace Ace was kind enough to play the solo for us on the lead single, this track called Late, and. Um, and so it's now it's it's like a real band and it's something that's up and running. And when, you know, when the right situation called, like we'll fire it up and go out and do it. And it, and also when schedule allows. Right. Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I, we're working on a Megadeth record, which is great. But, you know, Fra and Frank, it's funny, Frank's been touring a lot. They're, they're kind of shutting their touring down a little bit because they're also working on a new record. But the truth of it is, is, you know, Anthrax and Megadeth, I mean, People, you know, we're kind of at this point in our careers where people want us to go out and play and do stuff. And it's we don't have to just go make a new record and go tour that. We've got a, a legacy and a catalog that kind of keeps pushing us forward 
um, to go out and keep playing and doing stuff even without having new albums out. Yeah, that's a huge advantage. Like all the big four bands could easily not release a record in five years and still be okay to because of the catalog that you have. You know, you can. It's have pretty so, cool. Yeah, yeah so you know, much. right? Because you know how that is. It's like you kind of got to, oh my God, the level wants to put out a new album. You got to do a new record. Oh my God, shut everything down. And making records is a lot of work, man. I mean, especially in this day and age when people buy singles and they don't even buy full length albums. It's like we yeah. put all this work into it, as you know. We got to write these songs, we got to do pre production, and we got to get a producer, and we go in the studio, and, you know, it's fucking, you know, 100,000 bucks at least, you know, plus all the rest of it. And it's it's just, it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's, and you're like, you know, are we even going to recoup the money? Or like, you know, are, is it worth it? <laughs> you know, so we're lucky we got to the other side of that where now we've got, you know, this, this, catalog of work behind us and um but you know at the same time fans they still want to hear new music so i guess as long as they want to hear new stuff we'll keep writing and making new records for them that's yeah i mean i see every every one of you guys in big four have all continued to release new records which is great i mean that's not a lot of bands can say that and i think all the records from each one of you guys have been extremely consistent you know, with, with everything you've done, with the legacy that you have made, you know. So I think it's awesome that all of you guys are still be able to release new albums and still write relevant stuff, which is great. Good, man. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Now, uh, Metal Allegiance, uh, the all-star band. And and uh, I think uh, I saw Metal Allegiance on Shiprocked. Were you on that Shiprocked? I was. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah when you guys, guys played, played the whole Van Halen, Halen album? From yeah, <laughs> that was fun. That yeah, was that- we do just goofy stuff like that, you know. Basically, like it, we we all agree, like oh, we all have this Van Halen album. Oh, well, good. Well, we all know the part. Let's go play that album tonight, you know. So, <laughs> we do fun stuff like you that. You know what really blew me away about that? Not only the fact that you were playing, I mean the the whole record, but Alex Skolnick completely killed it. Like I had, I mean, he I, I've known him just from Testament, and he has the Alex Skolnick trio. So he comes from a neoclassical kind of jazzy thing. So here I am, here I am listening. I said, man, he is nailing every Eddie Van Halen solo. I mean, to, I mean, to the T and I was so blown away by that performance. And I've been, you know, I've been following a lot uh, and I've listened to the records. I love how you guys just bring in different people from John Bush, Blitz, Chuck Billy. I think it's an awesome concept and I hope this continues and I hope to see you again live so it's been a while. I, I have never, I haven't seen that since Shiprocked. I haven't been able to see a show. But are you guys going to continue that? Yeah, I mean, we put out two albums now on Nuclear Blast, two albums, two LPs, and an EP. And um, yeah, and the brotherhood and sisterhood continues to evolve. I mean, we've had everybody from Christina Scavia to Alyssa to uh, Lauren Hart from Camelot just joined us on this last tour. So you know, it's nice to get the the women involved. Floor from Nightwish. Um, sang and 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 wrote on us on a, the, the the title track power drunk majesty from our last album so it's great that it's 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 the brotherhood and the sisterhood you know and yeah. and metal is so wide now you know it's as much as we may go oh let's write a thrash record the reality of it is 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 it's so much more than that and and ironically me being you know, known as one of the big four of thrash, I'd probably bring in all the stuff that isn't thrash. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I look at it as an opportunity to do something different. And it's funny watching Portnoy play thrash and Mengi, you know, these guys, you know, they, they haven't gotten to do it. Me and Skolnick, we've done this shit for 35 years, you know what I mean? We've done it our whole lives. So I think it's, it's uh, you know, I love watching Alex really rise up and, and um, and you're right to be able to create uh, material that that has a nice bedrock for all these different singers to come in. Now, yeah, John Bush to to Max uh, Max Cavalera, um, again Flora from Nightwish, all these different people. You know, to to sing with us is is um, it's an honorarium basically to our our history to the to the metal community. And it's meant to be very wide and all-inclusive. It's not meant to be narrow and exclusive. I see you had Phil Demo out there on the dates, too. Yeah, Phil's great, man. I mean, Phil, Phil's such a great—he's such a good fit for that. You know, he's a real metal guitar player. I mean, he's just his hands and how he plays the guitar— he just drips metal, you know? So it's nice. It's kind of like in our band, you know, there's—he there's, uh, gets to really be a, a, the solid metal guy, Skolnick, of course, gets to, you know, uh, step out and do other other stuff that we know him for. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah, and it's you know, and it's funny on Shiprock that it's, it was ironic that you know Wolfgang Van Halen was playing bass for Mark Tremonti. So we went, we asked him. He said, "Wolfie, you want to join us and play some songs?" And he did. He came up and and played "Running with the Devil" and a couple songs off of off of that album. So we had we legitimately had a Van Halen on stage with us while we were doing the Van Halen album. That is awesome. That and um. So that's something you guys are going to continue to write like new music for that and continue to do shows. Yes, in fact, we um, there's a show thing coming up here. It looks like in the summer um, that should be announced here shortly. And also, um, we are now looking at our calendar of uh, when we can get together to, to 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 write. Probably in the fall, we're going to get there. The fall seems to be good. It's cold, it's dark, it's cold, and it's just wintry, and that's just good for writing an awesome metal album. Oh, it brings a lot of good vibes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. A lot of dark, a lot of dark vibes for sure. Darkness. Uh, my uh, my partner here has a question actually for you about your bass tone on a certain Megadeth song. So, Rob, take that away. So, uh, growing up, um, the the best and favorite that I had was Dawn Patrol and mm -hmm. I heard that tone and I mean I had started playing bass about a year or two before that came out and was like completely floored and I, I you know started to follow the gear that people were using and you know I had that young mentality of like oh the gear is going to make me a better player and it's you know usually not the yeah. case and it's the player that makes the the sound but um i noticed right. you're on jackson now and and harky's been a long time thing for you when what what other gear have you tried and and what really drove you to where you're at in tone well you're right the gear does not make the the player um the player makes the sound and makes the tone and and, and i discovered that when i was 11 years of age and my mother was kind enough to buy me a a gibson ebo bass out of the uh, local newspaper and I bought it. Be I wanted it because on the back of the Kiss albums it said Kiss use Gibson guitars and Pearl drums because they want the best. Mm -hmm. Well, me wanting to be like Kiss. Uh, well, look, if I get a Gibson bass, I'll sound like Kiss Alive, right? Well, I got the bass. I brought it home, and not only did I not know how to play it yet, but it certainly didn't sound anything like Gene Simmons on Firehouse or <laughs> you know, Detroit Rock City. <laughs> so uh, that was my first experience with gear, um, and. Um, so then as I played over the years, I, I picked up the, the plectrum, you know, to, to be a pick player, mostly just for tone so I could be heard. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have no snobbery of pick versus fingers or any of that crap. I stay out of that because the truth of it is, is you should use whatever is whatever the gig calls for. That's just simple as that. You right. know? Um, and, you know, um, in the early days of Megadeth, I tried to do fingers, but as the tempos got faster and the riffs got more complex, the pick was clearly the only way to really execute the lines properly. And and a lot of producers and engineers, when you get in the studio, the pick just sounds good. It just it makes the bass punch through and sit better inside the kick drum. And so there's you know that every situation is different. I just found the pick for me in the Megadeth setting really really worked, and I've just sort of adapted a you know, to that and, and a big part of my, my sound and what, you know, how I, how I pick that bass. It's kind of like how you hold a fork, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's just, how do you kind of naturally go for it? You know, um, you know, regarding Dawn Patrol, um, that album, the Rust and Peace album was my Jackson basses. I think I had two or three of them that I used, uh, for most of it. And in fact, in particular, I can, I can tell when I listen to the record, which there's this one bass that I had, um, which originally was red. There's some pictures of me on the internet sitting on a stool playing um, what would, would have been uh, on the So Far Squid to Water Peace Hell Store I was playing. These boots were made for walking. The intro, I'd sit on a stool and, and I'd play the intro and then I'd get up and kick the stool over and we'd rip into the rest of the tune, right? Well, yeah. that bass was originally candy apple red and had an ebony fingerboard on it. So it had this really sh sharp kind of snap to the note, this, this real kind of splat attack to it. And I, I eventually painted the bass black and then used it on the, you know, Rust in Peace tour. But during the recording of the album, um, that was one of the basses that I probably recorded about half of the album with. And in particular, I, I can tell I used it on, uh, Dawn Patrol because I can just hear the splat of the note. It just go, Oh yeah, that's right. That was that bass. Yeah. Um, and so it was that bass. They had Rotosound strings. I think I was using about a one millimeter 
uh, Jim Dunlop Tortex pick. It was the purple ones, I think, is what I was playing. So mm-hmm. it was pretty, pretty heavy pick. And then um, I played that through the uh, Galley Kruger 800 RB head. So a Harky uh, single 15 and a Harky uh, 410 cabinet. So have you been on Harky for, for a while then? Pretty much. I mean, I, I got my Harkies. Um, it was during the Peace Cells tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so probably 87 probably is when I got them. Late 86 or probably early 87, I think, is when I got those. So I used them. I recorded So Far So Good So What with those. I recorded Rust in Peace and Countdown with basically that exact same setup. The Jacksons, Roto Sounds, um, the uh, Galleon Kruger 800 RBs, and the, and the Harky Cabinets. That's what I used through those three records. Nice. That's, that's, it's a great yeah. tone. And now that you mentioned that, yeah, I used to have an ebony fingerboard, and I know what you're talking about. It has a different right. different tonality to it. And now I have a maple one, which is kind of the happy balance between rosewood and, and ebony. Yeah, yeah. And I had another, I mean, I had a couple of other bases. I think I might have used the silver base, you know, the silver one that had the dead Kennedy sticker on it. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I used that on some of Rust in Peace. One night I was drunk on stage in the Peace Cell store and I threw my silver base up in the air at the end of the night and it freaking came down and snapped the neck. Uh-huh. Broke the head stuck. So I had to send it off to Jackson. So I quickly called up to Sam Ash in New York to Lisa Shark. And I said, oh, my God, help. I need a base. She says, I, I do have a Jackson, but it's an ugly yellow crack eggshell. I said, I, I'll take it. You know. And um, so I bought a base with money I didn't have because we were very poor. And that was the base. I put a bunch of stickers on it. So eventually, I think I sent it over to Jackson and they painted it kind of this gunmetal gray. And... Um, there's some photos of me out there with it, and it's it was a great sounding bass, but it was a really warm, thick, he- bottom heavy bass, and it for I don't think it sat that I don't think it worked on the Rust in Peace album. Those those tempos were really fast, and it needed a, a bass that was pretty responsive and pretty snappy and trebly. So I just don't think it 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 ever worked on that that album. So I think I seem to remember I had like those three basses, and those are the ones that I always went back and forth and had that poor. That poor uh, uh, gunmetal gray, former ugly yellow, never seemed to make the cut on that record. Huh. Well, that's awesome. I'll finish you out here, and I appreciate you coming on the show. This has been awesome to talk to you, hear these stories. Um, Megadeth is currently writing. Like, how far along are you writing? Is it... Are you recording, or is that, are you still in the writing phase? You know, we've been we've been individually writing, submitting stuff. Uh, we've been working remotely on you know putting um, like I'll be out here in Arizona putting bass parts down, working on things and kind of piecing things together. And I think we've got you know, there's there's probably eight good arrangements put together. And and the idea that that of of us getting together now to be in the room together is that. Um, you know, so much of these records, either because of tour commitments and whatever else, you know, so, it, so many of these records are just you kind of come in, you sort of plug into the, you know, the board, Pro Tools, the computer, whatever, and you sort of put your parts down and and you sort of piece the record together. And one of the things that, you know, we talk about is that, you know, it's nice to be able to play some things, sit back, listen to it. You know, what does it sound like as a band? I, I remember we made the Super Collider record and we never played those songs together and we got out on stage and went, Oh my God, these songs are not working live. Um, and Kingmaker was, has worked well. That was good. And also dance in the rain, especially on Gigantor when Dave Draymond was out there with his band, uh, um, device. Cause then we'd have him come up and sing the song. Cause he sang on the record. It was awesome to have him come up every night and sing, you know, live with us. Um, but some of the other tunes, they just, they didn't, they didn't translate and they're great on the record. They sound fine, but you know, there's just a thing, you know, this band Megadeth started of us being in the room and you could just feel the fricking, it was like this fricking demonic possession of the music. You know what I mean? It was yeah, like, yeah. it just drew you in. You're like lip curling, like, fuck, dude, this is heavy. This is fucking scary. This is so heavy. Oh my God. Like, this is so, this feels so wrong, it's right, you know what I mean? Like, this is just shit from another dimension. And, and that you know, that experience, we all have that in our bands, whatever that is, you know, where it just, it, we're connected, it just, it moves the room. And then that's why, quite honestly, these early F5 demos that I put on the Sleeping Giants album, that's what those were. They're, they're, I remember we were rehearsing at this little rehearsal place. We had this grungy, shitty, dirty old rehearsal place down in Mesa, Arizona. It was in like a... Uh, uh, industrial 
air park strip mall kind of thing. And it was all like car mechanics and, and we're in there rehearsing, <laughs> writing these tunes. And I remember people would walk by and go, dude, you guys sound freaking awesome, man. It was heavy. And there was something about that that never translated satisfactorily over to our debut album, a drug for all seasons. And so having had that experience a few times, um, I'm glad that now with Megadeth, we're, we're getting in a room man. and like, like that's, you know, we're the best acid test we could have. If it fricking rocks our world and we're getting fucking boners over it, then it's probably going to work pretty good out in the live audience with the stage, you know, because we're fans too, you know? And, and, and I think it's you, you yourself as a band are always the first acid test before it ever gets recorded or goes out onto a stage. You know, I think it's really cool that, I mean, we have, all of us have embraced technology and it's really cool to email parts because obviously most bands, including mine, I mean, they have members who live in different states. So it's hard to, yeah. hey, let's get together every week to, to, uh, to write and jam. And that just not does not happen. I mean, we do get together maybe twice a year. Depending on what we're writing, we'll get together what we've sent. And it, and it has to work in the room. You can't just go in there and record it just because you lay down a drum machine and you expect me to go in there to play what that drum machine played. I'm not a machine. You know, so it, it need, the songs need to breathe, and I totally embrace that, uh, you know, that the bands do need to get in a room. And I think we get too comfortable sometimes with just being able, in front of, being able to be in front of a computer and do stuff and then thinking that that's all it's going to be. You know, it's, you really have to get in a room and jam it yeah, out. Yeah, there's got to be some physical energy. Your body has to kind of hurt a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, man, my fucking dude, I got blisters. Oh, my God, my hands are bleeding from fucking drumming so hard. and you know what I mean? There needs to be that physical connection because that's what this is, especially this genre of music. I mean, metal music is that, and it and it it, it has to be. A, it's a physical contact sport, man, and it, it needs to. You need to leave a little freaking blood and sweat on the stage. I totally agree. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming onto the show. We really appreciate you taking time. I know you're busy. You got a lot of stuff going on, but. Uh, once again, man, I appreciate it, man. I've always yeah, been a you. fan, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping to see you out there on the road sometime. Rockin'. You're welcome, you guys. Have fun. Thanks so much. Right. Thank you see so you much. Bye. That was unbelievable. Holy um, shit. <laughs> one, one of those moments that, uh, you know, you and I have, uh, have talked about, like, how blessed we are to be able to do what we love. But, man, we just got to interview somebody that's influenced both our lives as musicians. And still um, loves what he does. And is so down to earth and, and awesome and gave us that time to, you know, really um, get in depth with him and talk more, you know, about what he's been doing and all the things he's done. So much stuff, especially how he adapts to uh, to the different drummers, how he brought up Jimmy DeGrasso into like how he. And I think Jimmy DeGrasso was in F5 with him, wasn't he? He was. Jimmy DeGrasso was also in YMT. Oh, yeah. And, and Rat. And he also played a suicidal tendency. So the guy is definitely schooled in different genres, which is why I feel like Dave gave him such high praise because of the, you know, his variety of styles that he's played. And how conscious he is of groove, and that's amazing that uh, that you know that he learned more about stuff and how it di how the differences were from Jimmy back to Nick, yeah. How things had changed, and uh, and we learned something very important from Mr. Allison that uh, you actually uh, had like some kind of a new wave of thinking of playing with a pick. Um, you know, being a bass player for a long time and playing with your fingers, which is how you play upright. I mean, you never play an upright bass with a pick. Um, but it, 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 he said something that kind of rung a little true. And, and Fred, our producer on X had, had tried to get me to, to do it, but I wasn't going to waste the time of, of everybody trying to learn how to play to a pick when we were recording X. I just figured out how to do it with my fingers, which is why you guys started calling me fingers, but I can be fingers and picks now. And uh, and and uh, add a Z to to picks because I'm gonna I'm gonna fingers and picks. Um, you know, it's it's one of those scenarios where you have to serve the song, and I've always said that to you guys. And, fingers you and know. picks, fingers and picks. All I want is the fingers and picks, like the, like the kibbles and bits, song. fingers and picks. <laughs> but, but you know what, dude? It, I it think makes it's sense. Killer. Serving well, the song. You know, it, it's what he said. Whatever the gig called for. Exactly. And and. and 
I think not only does this, uh, the best news I ever heard in my life, saying that you're going to pl- learn to play with a pick. I mean, it just ups your arsenal. Like, hey, I can play with a pick. I can play with fingers. What is your preference? I can do them both. And it's yeah. it just like, and it just tone wise, it changes the tone too. It does when you play yeah. when you play with the with your with a pick. It actually gives it even a more solid growl. I mean, to, to those guys who play with fingers, nothing against you. Nothing. No, me not personally, at all. When I when I play bass, I play with a pick because I feel more comfortable, and I just like how it sounds better with a pick because I'm a metal guy. Like some certain songs with down picking, it's yeah. better to have a pick, you know. Well, I think I think as as it comes from someone like you know who inspired me as a young musician, uh, that's something I take a little bit more to heart, you know. Like everybody's saying, "Oh, try it with a pick, try it with a pick." It's like I was just you know a little closed minded, but hearing it from someone who's been in such a, a a prominent part of my musical life and growing up listening to. And and understanding why he does it. And, you know, he learned classical. He said it in the interview, you know, like he learned how to read manuscript. I can read music, too. I learned because I played trombone and then I switched to bass. And, you know, being a musician, I always thought, well, this is how it's done. And then hearing someone else who is in that same place, like he's he's schooled and he said he does it, then I'm going to have to give that a try. You know, I'm not I'm not going to keep my mind closed and, you know, limit myself in a way, because maybe that is something I've been doing. Maybe I've been limiting myself by only playing with fingers. But if I can give it a try and and succeed at it, you're right. It'll become something in my back pocket that I can be like, oh, hang on, let me just pull out this, you know, like like Dave said, uh, one millimeter Tortex Dunlop pick, you know, like that he used specifically for a sound on Dawn Patrol, which to me is one of the coolest sounds in the 1990s that ever came out on bass. And now you know what it is. And now I know how he did it. So I'm going to have to pick up a pick. Yeah. And it, I mean, great interview. And want to thank everybody for joining us. I mean, uh, we're hoping for more people like Dave to come on the show. I mean, we're blessed to already to say the people we have had on the show. I, mean, I know. It's been, it's been killer. I never even expected when we started this podcast to have a guy like Dave Ellison on the show. I'm just mm-hmm. so happy and blessed that he uh, agreed to do it. And for everybody out there, thank you for your continued support. If you have any questions, suggestions, guest ideas, you can email us at robcastpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, Instagram at robcastpodcast. Uh, just keep engaging. You want, uh, you can send messages through there as well. You can send, uh, you know, put all the comments you want, anything. Tell give your us friends the, about us. To, yeah, give us a five-star rating and reviews on, yes. on all the podcasts. That would be very helpful for us. And we appreciate the support. And once again, Rob Rusha, thank you for your hard work for everything. And uh, we will see all you Robcasters next week. Peace. Peace.